our kids are not going to have linear lives, far less linear lives even than we have. And I know from our pre-conversation, neither one of us has had a particularly linear life, but I think that is going to be the norm going forward. People are not going to spend 30 years at a company and they may get laid off or the work they're doing may become obsolete. 50% of jobs disappeared in the last five years. And so we want to be raising kids who can think outside the box, who can pivot and be flexible. Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? It's ADHD Awareness Month. So, virtual expos and summits. Lots of stuff to share. First, the ADHD Awareness Expo has been running all month long and will continue to run for the rest of October. And I'm a part of it. I talk about using pumpkin spice-like strategies to treat ADHD. It's hosted by Tara McGillicuddy, and other guests include Sharon Celine, Inger Shea Colsey, and Caroline McGuire. Also, the On the Right ADHD Trail Summit is happening right now, running from October 15th to the 18th. In it, I share lessons that I learned from COVID. It's hosted by Kathy Goet, and other guests include Melissa Orlov, Evan Kirstein, and Ari Tuckman. And finally, the ADHD Simplicity at Home Summit will be happening Friday, October 22nd, and I present live at 11 a.m. Eastern. It's hosted by Victoria Hunter, and other guests include Kathy Goldrich and the Childhood Collective. The links for all of these events will be in the show notes, including an updated one for the ADHD Awareness Expo. My earlier link was incorrect, so if you tried it and it didn't work, check out this new one. Sometimes the ADHD wins. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, the flagship show of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maben. Don't forget to join all of us for a live Q&A on Tuesday, November 9th, at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. If you want to support this show, a great way to do so would be to provide a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It really helps us with the algorithm, which then helps others find the show so we can help as many people as possible. And as usual, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies for doing the heavy lifting on this episode. Go to idealvideostrategies.com to learn more about his work. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis is a school counselor, a mental health clinician, and the author of the book, Middle School Matters. In today's episode, Phyllis talks about 10 key life skills through the lens of middle school. She discusses the importance of good friend choices and the influence of peer presence, 
reasons why we want to help our kids get clear on their values, the effects of the pandemic on our kids as well as ways to mitigate those effects, navigating teacher-student mismatches, the imaginary audience, and the value of identifying emotions. I want to make a quick note, this episode was recorded over the summer, so some of the examples are a little dated. Podcast time is weird. All right, let's get rolling. I'm Phyllis Fagel. I'm a school counselor in a K-8 independent school in Washington, D.C., and I see kids in private practice, and I write on the side. I'm actually the author of a book about middle school called Middle School Matters. That's why I wanted to have you on. Um, my audience hopefully remembers, unless they're new and then they don't know, that I used to be a middle school teacher. I was a sixth grade English teacher for most of my educational career. Middle school is where my heart is. Uh, my kids are going into seventh grade and I'm like, yay, it's middle <laughs> school. And they're like, no, this is terrible. All we've heard is bad things. But because I love middle school so much, I was jazzed and I just kind of came across you on Twitter and you were kind enough to come on the show. But I got the book. I've been reading through the book. And my audience knows that I'm a dork and I talk about like structural things and that kind of stuff. And so I want to I wanna play with that really quick and then we can go into the contents. Sure. One of the things that I love about this book is you've got these 10 key skills that kids need to thrive in middle school and really in life in general. And we'll talk about those, I'm sure. But what I, what I like love about it, and this is probably more teachery stuff in my head than anything else, but Every chapter starts with which of the key skills are going to be infused in that chapter, which is awesome because it kind of helps us frame our thought process. So I just wanted to compliment that component because that's phenomenal. Thank you. I think that's the school counselor in me wanting to make sure I'm as practical and concrete as possible because I'm so used to talking to parents all of the time. Yeah. And, and the other piece of this that I want to go to, and these, these are not, by the way, the 10 key skills Oh, audience. Kind of it is, but it's not really. But the sequencing of this book is important because it really tells me a lot about your approach and kind of who you are. And as I, once I got the book and was looking through it, I was like, oh, she's great. And I can't wait to have her on because we line up perfectly. Because when it says school on the cover, the expectation is that it's going to be like academics and here's how to get a, a plus and all that kind of stuff. And that is not this book. And that's so wonderful to me. Because section one is about values and integrity. Section two is aiming at social skills. Then section three, we finally get to learning. And then section four is about empowerment and resilience and sort of looking to the future and that kind of stuff. I love that. You can't learn if you're not clear on what your values are and, and getting the social skill stuff down. If you're not doing the soft skill stuff, you can't get to the academic skills with the kind of focus that is needed to be successful in that area. So I love that that's the structure of this book. Thank you. I think you articulated that perfectly and probably better than I could have, but it's true. You really can't learn unless you feel socially safe, unless you feel like you share the values of the other people in your community. And so that is definitely something that I think is the foundation, not just for learning in school, but also for absorbing the values at home that your parents want to share with you. How did you end up starting there? Part of that is my orientation as a school counselor. I'm all about social emotional wellness. And part of it is actually really practical. It's really hard to 
figure out how to interact with someone else if you don't understand yourself. It's really hard to learn if you don't know who you are as a learner or why learning is important to you in the first place. It's really hard to adopt new perspectives if you're not very comfortable embracing differences in other people, getting outside of your comfort zone. So I felt it was really important that kids understand and have a really firm grounding in who they are as a human being and why they matter and why they hold the views they hold. That will enable them to take more risks in the classroom. It will enable them to fail and get back up again when things don't go well. And it will enable them to take those social hits that inevitably come throughout middle school. It's just part of the process of figuring out what you need from a friend and what you can give to a friend. And secretly, although I'm telling everybody, this book doesn't only apply to middle school. This book kind of applies regardless of the age of your kid. Middle school is when this stuff kind of hits a pain point, I guess. Definitely. And I, I describe that tween phase as nine to 15 because kids are hitting maturity and some kids are really precocious at younger and younger ages, but also because these are skills you want to start teaching as young as possible, far younger than nine. But certainly by nine, this book becomes incredibly relevant to whatever is coming in the next couple of years. Can we play with the 10 key skills? Yeah. I hate to just constantly say I love this about the book, but I'm going to just like, that's the point of the podcast. I wouldn't have you on if I didn't think the book was great. <laughs> I love that it starts with make good friend choices, that that's number one. Why did you make that number one? I think that you are who you're with. If we want our kids to be interested in learning, if we want them to be good people, if we want them to be generous and learn how to be a part of a community, to be a moral person, to have moral courage, which I also think is incredibly important, then we really need to make sure that the people that they are spending their time with are people who reflect the kind of person they want to be. And that's something that I say to kids all of the time. When they're struggling with a friend, I'll say, is this somebody who you emulate? Is this somebody who has qualities that you really want to adopt yourself? And if not, what is it about that relationship that's drawing you to them? And is there maybe a healthier way to meet that need? That reminds me of the phrase that you're the average of your 10 closest friends or the 10 people you spend the most time with. I've never heard that. I love that. It, it's good. Yeah. I stole that from Jordan Harbinger, who is an awesome human being with a phenomenal podcast that I can't recommend highly enough called The Jordan Harbinger Show. That concept of you're the average of your five closest friends or the five people you spend the most time with, it kind of, I hear it both ways. It's a really important concept because it there's a lot of truth in there. I don't know that it's perfectly true, but there's a lot of truth in there. Well, the research shows that it's not peer pressure. You know, parents are constantly guarding their kids against peer pressure. You know, if somebody tells you to vape in the bathroom, you tell them you don't do that. But in actuality, what's happening is more about peer presence than peer pressure. Kids are not pressuring one another to do things that go against their values. It's that their peers are doing these things. And simply by being in their presence while they're doing those things, they're more likely to make those same poor choices or good choices. It goes both ways. Yeah. And that gets to the values component, right? Which is where you start. As a guy who has never in his whole entire life done drugs, smoked cigarettes, or drunk alcohol, the reason for that is because that was a value for me and it became a piece of how I identified myself. In high school, in college, I was absolutely at parties and houses where people were doing drugs, alcohol was being drunk, cigarettes were being smoked. I was in the presence of those things, but because my identity and my value structure said that I don't do that stuff, I didn't do that stuff. And there were times when it was hard and I felt very left out and very isolated 
but I stuck with who I am and who I believed myself to be. And that let me avoid some of the less good decisions that some of my peers are making. And I think it's actually super important that you form those values before high school. And I always say that middle school is the last best chance because that's when kids are intellectually sophisticated enough to absorb lots of ideas, complicated ideas, to still be open to their parents' values. They still want to please their parents. They just haven't shut down yet in the way that high schoolers often have. They've already pulled away from their parents. They're spending a lot more time with their peers. The disappointment of a parent doesn't hold quite as much power in high school as it does in middle school and when kids are younger. I'm curious about how COVID is going to affect that, how the isolation that COVID caused will influence. Will kids be tighter with their parents? Will kids push harder away from their parents once they can, maybe even now that they can? I'm curious to see how that's going to play out. Do you have any thoughts or guesses on that? Or have you noticed anything? My exhibit A is my own children. I have a a son who's 19. I have a daughter who is 18. And I have a son who just finished seventh grade, who's 13. And my experience watching the three of them go through COVID so far, and I know we were talking about this before, it's not over yet. And I think we're going to be seeing residual effects for quite some time. But it was hardest for my youngest child, for my middle schooler. And I think that was true for a couple of reasons. One, it's a developmental imperative for them to pull away from parents in that phase. And he really had no escape whatsoever. I was joking that he was turning into a vampire because the only way to get some alone time was to stay up all night when we were sleeping, to have the house to himself for a few hours. Whereas my older kids were able to drive, they were able to go hang out with friends outside in masked safe ways. My youngest child was really kind of a prisoner of being at home. And yes, it was wonderful for us. We loved all of the family time. And it was great to have that quality time together. But I do think that it didn't allow kids to hit certain developmental milestones that they very much need to hit in order to make that separation. So I expect to see, particularly in those tweens, some acting out, some extra excitement about socializing, seeing friends than we might have if it weren't post-COVID. That developmental component brings me to number two on this list of 10 key skills, which is negotiating conflict. One of the things that's happened with COVID is not seeing people for a year. There's this sort of subconscious vibe that we've been rejected by all of our friends, which isn't true. That's not what happened, but it's still, it's hard to process what happened. So I imagine that's going to make negotiating conflict more difficult than it might otherwise be because of this sort of rejection sensitivity that probably everybody is going through right now, and especially folks with ADHD, because we're prone to that anyway. In terms of my own kids, they've been going to summer camp. They spent the last two weeks at a summer camp. One of my kids managed to rub a few kids the wrong way, like in day one and day two. And he just decided those kids didn't like him. Like one misstep, one sort of rough patch. And he was like, those kids don't like me. Now, this was a group of kids he never met before. It was in a town that they don't live in. It was just a cool camp. So we drove him to it. But it was really telling to me that he was so sensitive and so quick to write those kids off. Am I on to something here that negotiating conflict might be extra difficult? I think so. I saw that with my own students as they were returning to in-person learning after being in hybrid and at one point being fully virtual. They were so sensitive 
for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was just that after being online for so long and then coming back to people who were masked, they didn't know how to read the social cues. They had not had the practice that they otherwise would have gotten, and they were not sure where they stood. I mean, we can imagine how they feel because we as adults are not sure where we stand with some of our friends. I know that I have had to pause and take stock and say, wait a second, who do I usually go for a run with? Who do I go get coffee with? Who are my people? Just because we all retreated inward for so long, unless we potted with another family or with a group of friends. And so I think that what we're going to see is that continued sensitivity. And the way it manifested with my students is that I'd have a child come to me and say, so-and-so hates me. They're completely ignoring me. I can talk to them and they don't even make eye contact with me come to find out that the person literally couldn't hear them through the mask. And so what I'm doing with students and what I really recommend other educators do, parents do with students, especially as they're returning to school in the fall, is to not only set them up for success by pairing them with kids who they do well with, where they're pretty well matched socially, but also to encourage them to consider alternative explanations when you hear them going to that worst case scenario. So with the case of your child, I might say to him, that's interesting. You definitely are feeling pretty insecure about that after your first interaction. What are five alternative possibilities for how this could play out? And what I tell kids is I don't need you to believe what you come up with. You can come up with something completely absurd, but I want them to get in the practice of developing that cognitive flexibility because if we want them to be resilient, we need them to at least entertain the possibility that somebody doesn't dislike them or someone doesn't intend to win them. So maybe those people were just trying to understand him a little bit better. And so they had a perplexed look on their face, or maybe they just happened to like somebody else a little bit better at the get-go, but that doesn't mean that they won't like him just as much as they start to hang out more. And then maybe even ask questions like, non-judgmental questions like, well, what might happen if you tried again? And if it didn't go well, could you handle that? And if not, what could you do then? Because sort of when we make those guesses about like, oh, that person doesn't like me because they had a perplexed look on their face. You don't know that that's true. Like we're making up a story in that scenario. We may as well make up a story that serves us rather than one that hurts us because they're equally likely to be true. And actually the kids in middle school who come up with the good stories, the ones who are like, I'm awesome, no matter what, only one of my three kids is like that, but we kind of appreciate it because no matter what hit he takes, he's just like, yeah, that's cool. All good. And gets back up and tries again. And we're not necessarily wired that way. We're really wired to remember the negative. We're wired to be self-protective. And so we actually have to teach kids sometimes to look at the glass as half full, but that optimism piece is so important to their well-being, and I think it's going to be even more important than it typically is for the next couple of years. Connected to the negotiating conflict, you also have that it's it's critical that kids learn how to manage a student-teacher mismatch. Walk us through that a little bit. So one of the most common complaints I will get from a student, and it will be something typically like my teacher hates me and I need to get out of this class. You have to put me in another class. And sometimes it's chased by a phone call from the parent who says, this kid can't have this teacher. This is a terrible mismatch and he's refusing to go to school or she's yelling at him. Whatever is going on is not working out. And I have a 
philosophy that's not always popular with parents when it comes to that student-teacher mismatch. But I think that's something that we should be ready and prepared and expect to happen and to use that to their advantage. And that's especially true in middle school because the stakes are low. The stakes are high because it's such a critical developmental stage and time to learn. But the stakes are low in that this is not a grade that's going to follow them for the rest of their life. They can fail and it is not a big deal. And so it's an opportunity to really help them study that teacher. What is it about them that isn't working for you? What might you be able to do to try to manage the situation or make it work as well as possible? And help them understand what it is that is creating that discord or that conflict. It might be that the teacher is really distractible and the kid has attentional issues and is fidgeting and maybe brings a fidget toy to the classroom and is making a lot of noise with the fidget toy and that throws off the teacher and that creates this negative dynamic. Maybe the kid then needs a less obtrusive fidget toy or needs a different strategy. But I think learning how to get along with people, whether they're older, or younger, the same age is super important because someday they're going to have conflict with a boss. And they can't just say, you know what? I don't want this boss. I want a new boss tomorrow. Find me a new boss. And so we do them a long-term disservice if we alleviate all of that discomfort that they're experiencing in that moment. Yeah, that's awesome. That whole idea that like a mismatch with the teacher is an opportunity to learn how to navigate social dynamics and power dynamics and all of those components, that's, that's critical. Number four is create a homework and organizational system. How? <laughs> <laughs> so this is another area where I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> I think that parents often are unclear about what their job is when it comes to middle schoolers and helping them with homework. And it's even more complicated because kids are on the fence about whether or not they want their parents to be involved at this age. They may suddenly be super sensitive about how well they're performing or how poorly they're performing. They may not want to admit that they're struggling or that they need extra support. They may not know how to ask for help. And so to me, the goal of a parent is to set that child up for success and help them develop the skills and strategies that they need so that by the end of middle school, they know how they learn, they know how to ask for help, they know how to self-advocate, they don't feel compelled to lie or cheat, which is really common in middle school. I think people think about middle schoolers as cheating because they simply want that A, but it's really a lot more complicated. It often has to do with anxiety. It might have to do with worrying that they'll drop a notch in the eyes of their own peers. It might be because they're struggling and they need extra support and don't know, need, don't know how to ask for help. So we really want to be almost like an anthropologist and taking a hard look at what is getting in their way and what we need to do to scaffold the work for them. So going back to the idea of what a parent can do, they can have a clean, uncluttered workspace. They can make sure that there are no major distractions like barking dogs or siblings. They can quiz them if the child wants to be quizzed. They can help them go through their scheduler if they need help getting organized. They can help them come up with a plan of attack. They can sit with them and help them write an email to a teacher if that's not something they yet know how to do. What we don't want to do as parents is to be super critical. We don't want to do the work for them. We don't want to heighten the anxiety. Often the best thing that we can do as parents, if we see that our child is struggling and starting to get really amped up and frustrated, 
is to encourage them to just take a break and come back to it when they're in a better place. I want to play with cheating for a second, because you'd mentioned uh, that 29% of students admit to using tech devices to cheat in school. 35% of teens with cell phones admitted to cheating with them at least once. I read that and I wondered, is this cheating or is this an evolving norm from a younger generation? Because a lot of what used to be cheating for me is now standard operating procedure. You're not supposed to just look the answer up. That's cheating. You're supposed to know it. But now I have a device in my pocket that knows literally all the answers and I can just go Google it. It bothers me when people are like, hey, I wonder if that guy was in this other movie. And I'm like, why are you wondering that? Don't wonder that you can find out. And so I'm curious about, is this a norm that's changing or is this something we really need to panic about? You know, I think it's a combination of teachers needing to change their approach based on the technology available to students and also making sure that students know what plagiarism is, that they know what cheating is, that they know what the difference is between their own work and copying someone else's homework. I think it's very easy for a child to get confused about a lot of these particular areas, particularly since for middle schoolers, that social piece is so important that if a friend who is pretty much responsible, doesn't ever ask to copy homework, does their work on their own, one day says, you know what, I forgot my homework, can I just copy yours today? It actually feels like the right thing to do is to just let them have it because that's what a friend would do. And so rather than jumping to this conclusion that our child is a bad person or that a student is a cheater, I think we have to take a step back and say, what's happening here? What is the teachable moment? What is the missing piece? And make sure that going back to that idea of starting with the values, helping them understand the difference between honesty and cheating, between lying and being really forthright. Because if they don't understand that underpinning, they're not going to be able to make choices that are aligned with what the schools expect of them. And potentially on the teacher's side, sharing with the students why we're doing what we're doing. On this test, there's going to be a lot of regurgitating of dates and names. And the reason we're doing that is because you do have to have some foundational knowledge that kind of people expect you to have in our country, town, civilization. So we're trying to get some of that into your head or you're going to have to regurgitate these facts because it's important that you know how to remember stuff. Like we want to be able to practice that muscle of the brain, not that there's muscles in the brain. It might be something along those lines because I my kids find a lot of what happens in school to be silly and a joke and un, unrelatable because they're like, why do I have to do this when the answer is right there? They hate open response questions when they have to read an article and then basically rewrite the article as an open response question, drives them nuts because they're like, you know, I just read the article. Why do I have to write the article down to show you that I know how to write and that I read it? Like I've done other things that show that. And I don't know how to argue with that, sort of. So I think it's important that we, as teachers, make it really clear what is the skill that we're assessing and building in this moment and with this assignment or unit or whatever, so that it makes sense that our kids are doing things that might in the wider world not make sense because they can just Google it or something along those lines. I, I love that way of explaining the relevance and why they're doing it because they will try to argue why it doesn't matter, why it's not important. And I do think it's important to have some kind of a rationale. I also think it's important to give kids some voice and choice in what they're doing. Maybe there are three book choices or three passages that they can read before they have to regurgitate 
and come up with some kind of thesis statement or summary so that they do feel that they're in the driver's seat to a certain extent. We know that eventually they're going to get to choose where they want to focus their energy. And so I think that's a skill too, figuring out what appeals to you, what's interesting, and experiencing the joy of learning because something is exciting as opposed to somebody just telling you this is what you have to do. I had my guys write some essays and all of them were, you're writing this essay for two reasons. One, so that you can show me that you know how to write and then we can work on that. And two, I want to see that you understand how to judge sources and that you can figure out what's a reliable source, what source is a little bit sketchy, what's true, what's not true. They had one assignment where they had to have two sources for every single fact that they shared in their paper, which is obnoxious. And I wouldn't do that in a middle school class, but I homeschooled my kids for COVID and I could do whatever I wanted. And that assignment could take as long as it needed to take. <laughs> but I think that that's, that stuff is important here too, is though those bigger skills that are not just in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. hundred percent. And that critical thinking skill is more important than ever, because if they have that phone in their pocket, that computer in their pocket, they are constantly Googling things and assuming something is a source. I had a student, a seventh grade boy who was spouting off facts from Prager University. And he said, it's a university. You know, he, it wasn't, it was somebody in a basement somewhere who was creating all of this, these materials that he was sourcing. So it is incredibly important that kids know where they're getting their information from and know how to interpret it. All of the last five minutes gets to part five, right? Which is consider others' perspectives. That's what we've been doing. That I, I don't know how to more clearly illustrate that that's an important thing <laughs> than the fact that we just did that without even meaning to, it just kind of happened. But it's critical that our kids learn how to take other people's perspectives so that they can have a better understanding of themselves, have a better understanding of what the assignment is and why they should do the thing and all that stuff. Definitely. And, and often teachers have a lot of luck by having kids debate both sides of the same issue to get in the habit of adopting different perspectives, even in the classroom. And I think that's a really useful skill. And if nothing else, even if they don't change their opinion or broaden their worldview at all, at least they're learning how to have civil discourse, you know, how to have a conversation where you're not resorting to ad hominem attacks, where you're relying on data and facts, and where you're respectful and you're pausing. And that active listening skill is just as important with their social relationships as it is with their schoolwork and with their future work or future relationships. And another one that's important for future work and future relationships is self-advocating. Middle school is where that really gets to start. What, what are the typical hangups that you find for kids? I think that self-advocating is hard in middle school because it is this point in your development when you are suddenly acutely aware of what's called the imaginary audience. You feel like everybody is scrutinizing you. You don't necessarily want to even be looked at. And if you raise your hand, you might be stared at. You may not want to admit that you don't quite know what's going on. You may have somebody in the class who you have a crush on or who you want to be friends with and you want to impress. And it's harder to take those academic risks when you're so consumed by what's happening around you socially and with your peers. And so we have to teach kids how to take those risks incrementally. And the way I do it with students and the way I encourage parents to do it with kids at home is to ask them to rate a risk on a scale of one to 10. 
So it might be giving a presentation in front of the class. It might be doing something like making plans with a friend, even texting someone that they want to hang out with can be a really big risk for a seventh grade boy or girl. So what you can then do is say, okay, so if you've just told me that getting up in front of a class and giving a speech is an eight or nine, on the, or maybe even a 10 on a scale of one to 10, what would constitute a risk in that four to seven range? And the reason I'm aiming for that four to seven range is because if they don't push themselves at all, it reinforces the idea that they can't do it. If they push themselves too far too fast and it doesn't go well, then for the rest of their lives, their brain might fire danger, danger, danger when they're in that situation and they might avoid it. And so I've had students tell me that they will deliver the presentation if their back is to their class or if it's only for a few students or if we don't record it, because often we will record the kids doing speeches. So that way it's not preserved for posterity if something goes horribly wrong. And so just working with them, giving them back that semblance of control can often help them get outside of their comfort zone. And the beautiful thing to pushing them at a comfortable pace is that over time, that muscle builds, that courage muscle builds, and it builds at a time when they're most inclined to avoid risks. And another another piece to self-advocacy that you talk about later on, and I don't remember if it was actually in the context of self-advocacy or not, but it certainly applies, is the whole idea that we should start from a place of trust, but expect mistakes and missteps. And when a parent is on the receiving end of that self-advocacy, when the parent is hearing the kids say, I think I should be allowed to stay over Tammy's house or go to the amusement park by myself and that kind of stuff. If we are able to trust that maybe they can do that thing, but expect things to go wrong so that when they do, we don't over respond, we can really help our kids practice independence in a way that is powerful. So you might say, well, why don't we talk to Tammy and her parents first and find out if this is even on okay with them if they know, and what is that evening going to look like? Or if it's a, an amusement park, we might say, sure. I think that's a great idea. Let's get X number of your friends that I am comfortable with and I will drive you to the amusement park and I'll be there, but I'm just going to hang out at the Ferris wheel because it's big and easy to find. And you guys go do your thing and come back and get me. If you need me, you'll all have cell phones. It'll be, we'll able to stay in touch if we need to that kind of stuff where there's, we're trusting them, but we're building in some safeguards in case there's missteps so that the missteps don't blow up too hard. Those are great examples. And I think kids are really understanding when you frame it as a safety issue and not as a trust issue. And those examples were perfect because you're saying, I want you to have these social opportunities. That does sound fun. You're validating why they want to do it. You're not trying to get in their way. You're actually trying to get out of their way, but you're establishing that baseline importance of safety and raising my own kids. I don't think there's ever been a time where I've gotten pushback when I have said, look, this is what is most important to me right now, that I know where you are, that I know when you're returning, that I can reach you, that you'll text me back if I text you, that I know there's a designated driver. If I'm worried there might be drinking, this is with older teens. And that I think is really establishes that respectful relationship and that trusting relationship that you're talking about. They're much less likely to lie to you too. And number seven is self-regulate emotions that our kids have to learn that. And for my ADHD parents in the audience, uh, so do we as parents need to work on self-regulating our emotions. What are some ways we can help kids to learn that skill? 
One of the most powerful ways to help kids get in touch with their feelings and come up with a solution. And the reason we want them to get in touch with their feelings is not only to recognize what's going on in their interior life, but to be able to formulate the right response. If you come up with the right solution to the wrong problem or the wrong solution to the right problem, it's not going to work. So if a kid is feeling really sad and they're sad because they're bored, they're going to have a different response than if they're sad because they're lonely. If they're lonely, we want to be coaching them to call a friend, to make plans. If they're bored, we might want to be talking to them about how they might use their time. And you can't even get to that problem-solving stage if they don't know what they're feeling. So parents can model for their kids. I'm feeling blank. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call that relative I miss, or I'm feeling really anxious because I'm disorganized. So I'm going to pay my bills that I've been putting off for two weeks. And They also can help their child identify their feelings by saying, you know, you look like you're feeling a little frustrated right now. Do I have that right? Is that, do you think that's what's going on? And just coming from that non-judgmental place of curiosity and helping them label their feelings. We know that middle schoolers are really bad at labeling their feelings and they're even worse at asking for help. So they really need parents to help them recognize when they need some extra support. I know my kids and I had a handful of conversations about angry versus frustrated because they kept mislabeling me and saying, dad's mad, dad's angry. And I was like, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. Like you've seen me angry. It's happened like four times in your life and you cried every time. But this is not me being angry. I'm just I'm aggravated. I'm frustrated. Like that's true. But I'm not at the next tier up of like anger. It's powerful to explain that to them. I actually just had that conversation with my own spouse, because when one of our kids gets hurt and we were reflecting on when they were young, sometimes he can almost look angry, but what it is, is that he's fearful or he's anxious about the fact that they may have been really injured. You know, I remember when my two-year-old ran into the refrigerator and his head blew up, you might have thought he was responding in anger if he didn't really understand what was happening in that moment. And so taking that extra minute to spell out what we're feeling, even if they're not asking, even if they're not saying you're, you're mad dad, but just taking that step of explaining it, even if they don't seem to care or want to know, it can be really helpful. Number eight kind of disconnects from all of that stuff a little bit. It's still emotions kind of, but it's about cultivating passions and recognizing limitations. And so the passion is the emotional part, right? Like not what makes you mad, but what makes you feel really excited and, and motivated. This seems like a silly question, but why is it important to cultivate passions and recognize limitations? So I've started calling them, I take this from Susan Kane, but she calls them big likings because I think kids feel a lot of pressure to have passions when they don't even know what they really like yet. And so when I talk about passions, what I'm really talking about is developing or burgeoning interests. And I think at every phase of our kids' development, we want to be helping them figure out where their strengths and their interests intersect, where they align. Because that's the most powerful way to help them start thinking about future careers and the direction they want to take their life. No one's going to be good at everything. We know that. And they don't need to be good at everything. But what we want them to do is find something that fills them with purpose, something that gives their life meaning, something they feel like they do well. And we don't necessarily want them to give up on something just because it's hard, but it's information. If there's something that both excites them and is something that they can excel at, that's information that we want to be really pointing out for them. It also boosts their self-esteem at an age when they're pretty insecure. 
Number nine is that we want to teach our kids to make responsible, healthy, and ethical choices. Those are three very different things, but it's all of them are important. How do we help them navigate that? I think this is really tied into our conversation about safety, really walking kids through the scenarios they're going to experience, the temptations that they might face, coming at it from a place of understanding and non-judgment. You know, I often will share things from my own childhood or times when I was tempted to do the wrong thing. And I really like the research of somebody at Dartmouth College named Josh Compton. He calls it inoculation theory. And he says, you can inoculate kids against bad choices the same way you inoculate someone against a virus with a vaccine. And what he does is he would have parents say, you're going to be tempted to gossip. It feels good to have the best story. You might feel powerful in that moment. That's previewing why it's tempting. Then the next step is to give them a compelling reason not to behave that way. You know, it feels even better being known as a vault, being known as the person everyone trusts. That's this person who you can go to in a crisis. And I think we want to be having those kinds of conversations throughout our kids' childhood to get them thinking about temptations and why they might want to make a different choice. And then the last one, ladies and gentlemen with ADHD, you're welcome because now when you get this book, you can start on page 11 because we just did the first few pages for you. But I highly recommend this book. There's a lot of great stuff in here that we haven't gotten to yet. I'm full of sticky notes. But number 10 is create and innovate, which is kind of vague. So help me understand. Our kids are not going to have linear lives, far less linear lives even than we have. And I know from our pre-conversation, neither one of us has had a particularly linear life, but I think that is going to be the norm going forward. People are not going to spend 30 years at a company and they may get laid off or the work they're doing may become obsolete. 50% of jobs disappeared in the last five years. And so we want to be raising kids who can think outside the box, who can pivot and be flexible. And those are skills that we can teach in a really concrete way, which is what I talk about in that chapter. But it's about being ready for that changing future. And the past two years, if nothing else, have shown us that we do not know what we are going to get hit with next. Yeah, absolutely. And just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation. And I think I'm as obsessed with middle schoolers as you are, which is always a joy to talk to someone else who really appreciates this phase. Yeah, you're going to have to come back. (laughs) (laughs) I would be happy to come back. But I think my takeaway is just to really enjoy your kids and don't look at this phase as something to dread. It's a beautiful phase. It's when they really care what you think. They want to know everything about you. This is when they start to get that PhD in you. And it's an opportunity to get in there and coach them, not to protect them, but to help them recover when they experience all kinds of setbacks that are part of the learning process. It's not the easiest time, but it's a very rewarding time as a parent. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.